Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Blois Olson. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the debate surrounding school resource officers continues at the Capitol. We kick off a series on youth sports in Minnesota, but first. Two Burnsville police officers and a fire department paramedic were shot and killed at a home early Sunday morning after an hours-long standoff following a domestic abuse call. Governor Tim Walz. To the families uh, of Adam, Paul, and Matt, Minnesota mourns with you. State stands ready to assist in any way possible. This week you'll see the flags flying at half-staff. That's a sign of respect and mourning, but it's a time to give each of us, as you drive by one of those flags, to maybe pause and think about these first responders, these, these public safety officials. They're moms and dads, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. They're the world to a lot of people, and they go out and do the job to provide us safety that we have the luxury of not having to think about many times. This is not going to go away in the next few weeks. It's not going to go away when investigation's done. These families are forever impacted. And we still have Minnesotans willing to take an oath, sign up, do the work, and know this can happen. And, and that speaks volumes about this community, speaks volumes about Minnesotans. Police Chief Tanya Schwartz says officers Paul Elmstrand, Matthew Rugi, and firefighter paramedic Adam Finseth are heroes. We are all hurting. Our officers, our fire department, our families, all of our staff, our community. We're heartbroken. We are heartbroken. Minnesota BCA Superintendent Drew Evans says it happened when an armed man was barricaded inside a home with seven children. At one point during that barricaded situation, the subject opened fire on the officers in the home. And officers Elmstrad, Rugi, and Finseth from the fire department were killed by the gunman during the response. MNN's Brent Palm has more on the gunman. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner says 38-year-old Shannon Gooden also died in the incident Sunday morning. His cause and manner of death haven't been released, but his family tells reporters Gooden died of a self-inflicted gunshot. The ME's report says Officer Matthew Rugi died of a gunshot wound to the chest. Officer Paul Elmstrand died of multiple wounds, and fire paramedic Adam Finseth was shot in the arm and torso. The State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension says Gooden fired more than 100 rifle rounds at law enforcement and first responders. The BCA says investigators believe the two officers who died were initially shot inside the home. They say officers had been negotiating with Gooden inside that residence for about three and a half hours when he opened fire without warning. It's believed officers Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Rugi were hit along with officer Adam Medlicott. He and another officer returned fire, hitting Gooden in the leg. They say officers Rugi and Medlicott were shot a second time as officers moved from the home to an armored vehicle in the driveway, and that is when firefighter paramedic Adam Finseth was fatally shot while trying to aid the officers. Bill Werner reporting. Burnsville Mayor Elizabeth Coutts. We're taking care of our police and fire personnel, and they have all of the resources that they need to help them through this emotional crisis that we're going through. And we will continue to make sure that they have the resources that they need. She adds in the coming days, Let our gift to them be the unification of our community, coming together, to be together, to mourn together, and to care for one another. 
Second District Congresswoman Angie Craig assured the Burnsville community, Minnesota is with you. As you go through these hard times, we are all Burnsville in Minnesota. Every single one of us are Burnsville. We are with you. Those communities are with you. Senator Amy Klobuchar says the three men did what they did every day. They answered the call. That's what they did every day, and that's what they did this day. They didn't delay. They didn't turn away. They went right into the danger to save those seven children. That's what they did, and they gave their lives doing it. They answered the call. Klobuchar says now is the time for Minnesotans to answer the call. To deeply respect those that continue to do the work, those in law enforcement and firefighting that need the resources and everything we can give them, but also need our respect day in and day out. Burnsville Fire Chief B.J. Jungman says they continue to grieve. This is the toughest day that the city of Burnsville and our public safety families have ever experienced. My hearts and prayers go out to the families who lost a loved one in the line of duty today. Our folks come to work every day and are willing to give up the ultimate sacrifice of their life, but no one expects it to happen. A joint memorial service for Elmstrand, Rugi, and Finseth will be held Wednesday at Grace Church in Eden Prairie at 11 a.m. More Minnesota Matters after this. Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So... Ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. The state of Minnesota continues to mourn the loss of three first responders killed in the line of duty in Burnsville. On today's show, the president of the Minnesota Fire Chiefs Association tells MNN's Brent Palm that the fatal shooting of fire paramedic Adam Finseth has hit them especially hard. Albertville Fire Chief Eric Bullen, also president of the Minnesota Fire Chiefs Association. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Brent. The entire state is mourning the loss of the three first responders uh, killed while responding to a domestic call Sunday in Burnsville. And one of the victims is firefighter paramedic Adam Finseth. And from what I understand, he's the first firefighter in Minnesota fatally shot at a crime scene. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's what we believe. We've had that. We've gotten that question quite a bit this week. Um, our uh, fire service foundation is the, is the kind of the record keeper of that. But trying to think back through history that that would be that'd be a correct statement yes and you know sadly we've we've had firefighters you know die battling fires and that's your number one job firefighters don't have guns i know that uh finseth was part of the swat team um and was a paramedic and you know went to crisis situations with them but this has got to hit pretty hard for folks in the firefighting profession 
Yeah, it's a fair statement. I mean, we if you look at current events over the last couple of weeks, we've seen compressed natural gas explosion in L.A. that injured nine firefighters. We saw a house explosion in Virginia um, that killed one firefighter, 13 other firefighters injured. Those are the things that I don't want to say we're prepared for, but we trained for. Um, in our profession, we talk about increased risk of cardiac and cancer. Violence acted upon us by another individual is is it's not unheard of, but it's definitely not something that we see every day. So the, the, the tragic nature of this, I mean, nothing's great, nothing's fun, but the tragic nature of this, it's, it's really hard for sure. Yeah. And as I was kind of alluding to, and I'm not sure about Finn, Seth, but most firefighters don't have guns. They don't wear bulletproof vests. They're there. They're there to save folks. Yeah, correct. We've seen, I mean, along with law enforcement over the last, three or four years, I'd say we've seen an uptick on, on not necessarily assaults, but aggressive actions towards all first responders, whether it's police officer, firefighter, para, uh, paramedic, uh, EMS worker, to the point where the state has started looking at grant opportunities for funding for ballistic vests for firefighters. Ten years ago, you never would have heard of something like that. So it's definitely in our minds that our fire departments that go out and purchase ballistic vests. Some require them for use on the job and some keep them on trucks. But this type of stuff on a call, like we talked about, is, isn't normal for us to see, that's for sure. Have you guys, uh, your department at Albertville, have you talked to the firefighters about it? Have you folks had conversations since Sunday? We haven't trained since Sunday. Um, obviously, I've sent out just email communications with our group. We have training a week from today, and we'll we'll discuss some of these things. We're pretty active in our training for active shooter response where we link up with law enforcement. We go into a controlled situation, right? Not necessarily the same situation that was seen in Burnsville. I don't want to say we're used to, to operating with law enforcement, but it wouldn't be something abnormal in, in the realm that we do, right? We're not supplementing a SWAT team with a paramedic or anything like that, but it's something that we try and stay on top of. Obviously, our firefighting skills take priority, so that's definitely something that we don't do enough of. I don't know if you've talked to anybody who knew Adam Finseth. You know, I was reading that, you know, you got to be wired to be a guy like this. He was the SWAT team paramedic, a firefighter. He was a water rescue trainer. And from what I read, was also uh, in the Army and served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. So these folks, and you folks, I should say, overall, are prepared for emergency situations. Yeah, we are. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to devote their life to the safety of others, right? Like, I'll refer back to the Kansas City incident where you see video of the incident after the uh, Super Bowl parade, and you see all these members of society running away from the incident, and you see hundreds of police officers and then firefighters and paramedics running towards the scene. You have to be wired a little different to do that. Um, but fortunately, there are people that are wired that way, especially talked about his military background. He's been wired that way for a long time to give to the service of others, and that's that's very impressive. And I know from friends of mine that, you know, being a firefighter is a big brotherhood. Next Wednesday, they're doing a memorial for all three of these first responders at Grace Church in Eden Prairie. You plan on sending some folks over there? Yeah, our department will be sending people. Um, like I said, our Fire Service Foundation has been working with uh, Law Enforcement Memorial Association since Sunday to kind of coordinate activities, um, trying to work with the families for their private funerals over this weekend, and then definitely the memorial service on Wednesday. It'll be a large showing of support, not only from the state, but I'm guessing the region and Canada and across the country. So that brotherhood and sisterhood that you talk about does, despite some running jokes, does cross lines between law, law enforcement and the fire service. And we're there 
there to support each other. And then in, in all of the communities across the state, they actually do work hand in hand with each other to take care of the calls for service that come in that, that we're required to act on. So it will be, it'll be emotional. It will be good for everyone to see each other and share that support, that brotherhood and sisterhood that you talked about. We greatly appreciate what all you folks do, and I've never seen more of an outpouring of support for these three first responders in Minnesota. I mean, it has all been positive. I know this is a tough time for you people. Thank you, Brent. No, we we appreciate the support. I know the city of Burnsville appreciates the support. We hope that support continues not only past this weekend and, and next week. The families, the coworkers, the city of Burnsville, this isn't something that goes away after a week or two. This takes months and years, and that and that pain carries on. So support going on into the future is, is equally as important. So I appreciate you having me on to discuss this important topic, and I'm grateful that you called. Well, President of the Minnesota Fire Chiefs Association, Eric Boland of Albertville, hey, thanks a lot for joining us today. And like I said, we're, we're praying for you folks. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate that. Thanks, Brent. Time for a quick break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. In the aftermath of last weekend's tragedy in Burnsville, state lawmakers are trying to address another issue affecting police officers. Law enforcement's objections to a state law passed just last year that governs use of force by school resource officers, that is, officers who are on site in Minnesota schools. Eminence Bill Werner filed this report. Law enforcement has their minds on other things right now. I think it's appropriate. Let's take a pause. Let's take a step back. And um, I think it's all of us just need to take a deep breath. Maple Grove Senator Warren Limmer on Monday as the aftermath of the fatal shootings of two officers and a paramedic reverberated through the halls of the state capitol. That day's Senate hearing on the school resource officer issue postponed, as was Tuesday's hearing in the House, even as behind-the-scenes negotiations continued to try to reach a compromise. Hamilton University political analyst David Schultz says the issue is that law enforcement... What they would like to have the language say is that SROs can use the same... Um, physical restraints or use of force that any other reasonable police officer would use in a similar situation. Basically want the same rules being applied. But that is something that Democrats, at least uh, urban Democrats who are being informed by what happened to George Floyd, uh, would not sanction. Absolutely correct. Yeah. If anything, because they're responding to um, the political pressures from their constituents, probably would like to place even more restraints, not just on SROs, but on, pol- on police officers in general. Um, this, this, was, this was what they were able to get through, the Democrats, last year in the legislature in terms of some changes. And, and now they are being pressured to, by, the, by the police officers union, peace officers union, to, to, tr- to undo those changes. And, and the pressure and, point has been some law enforcement agencies pulling their SROs out of schools absolutely correct at this point. By midweek, Republicans tried in committee to convince Democrats to abandon any possible fix and simply repeal the law that was passed last year, which law enforcement says is unclear. Rockville Senator Jeff Howe contends that law is not needed because he says even Governor Tim Walz indicated he could not find an incident where an SRO abused use of force against a student. We didn't identify a problem. We just passed a law. And now we're here trying to go back to fix that. But St. Paul Democrat Claire Umover-Baton responded, there is a problem. Gabe, one of the high school students, talks about being black youth who was in fifth grade, weighing less than 100 pounds, when an officer put 
him in a prone restraint. Democrats, with a majority in the Senate and by extension on that committee, put an amendment on the bill hoping to address the concerns of both sides. But major law enforcement agencies wouldn't yet say if they supported it. I am um, optimistic based on the discussions that we've had, but I think I would like to wait until I see something, a clean copy of all of this put together. Right County Sheriff Sean Derringer with the Minnesota Sheriff's Association. By the next morning, when a House committee took up the companion bill, it appeared law enforcement's concerns had been allayed. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? The motion prevails. A key change that apparently broke the stalemate gives law enforcement comfort language that school resource officers will not have different restrictions on what level of force they could use than any other peace officer. But something law enforcement apparently had to give on, having the peace officer standards and training, or post board, develop statewide standards for school resource officers. New Hope Democrat Cedric Frazier says it creates a framework that we don't have now. We've had a kind of a mismatch, hodgepodge with different uh, criteria in them around the state. Lakeville Republican Jeff Whitty helped broker the compromise. We asked him if major law enforcement groups now support it. We worked through it and um, we have come to language that uh, we're all going to support and get our SROs back into schools. Before we finish, let's take a closer look at the balance that lawmakers are trying to strike in this compromise between law enforcement, which wants on-site school resource officers to have all the latitude that any other officer has to use what a trained officer judges is an appropriate level of force in a certain situation to prevent serious bodily harm or death. On the other side, some Democrats who say prone restraint, such as was used on George Floyd, has no place ever in a Minnesota school. Here is the actual compromise language amended into the bill. Judge for yourself whether it strikes that balance. Quote, Nothing in this subdivision limits any other duty or responsibility imposed on peace officers, limits the expectation that peace officers will exercise professional judgment and discretion to protect the health, safety, and general welfare of the public when carrying out their duties, or creates a duty for school resource officers to protect students, staff, or others on school grounds that is different from the duty to protect the public as a whole, unquote, the actual language in the bill. Here's Hamlin University legal and political analyst David Schultz's take on the language. It's not completely clear what it means. It will be curious to see what would happen with a judge in terms of how a judge would interpret it. But as I read it, it sounds like what the amendment is doing is to say SROs go by the same rules as regular police officers, but it doesn't say it directly that way. It's kind of a backhanded, awkward way of reaching that same conclusion. And why do you think that is? I I mean, there's so much, David, you and I know there's so much discussion in in the halls of the state capitol, of all state capitals, of trying to make laws clear uh, so that uh, you don't have a situation where if there's a challenge to them that there's a, a, a problem with the court interpreting it. Why would this be done differently in this case? As I tell my students sometimes, when legislation is drafted and it looks ambiguous or vague, sometimes it's done for intentional purposes. And it's intentionally vague or ambiguous because it's a product of political compromise. And a lot of groups are willing to go along with language simply because it doesn't clearly state what is supposed to happen. And it leaves things sort of um, undefined, perhaps maybe. It leaves it in such a way that it's so vague that it forces it to go to the courts. And essentially, the legislature kicks the the can down the line, says, here's a compromise. We've done something. 
what the court's now sorted out in terms of is it constitutional, is it not, what does it mean, and so forth. That's Hamlin University's David Schultz. We'll have to see, Tasha, if this compromise meets the acid test, namely enough votes to pass the Minnesota House and the Senate. Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters in 60 seconds. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. This is Blois Olson for Minnesota Matters. This week, we start a new series on the value of Minnesota youth sports to local communities. Our conversation this week is with Lindsay Hartfield of the Coon Rapids Basketball Association and State Representative Zach Stevenson as they discuss the importance of getting kids involved with sports early in life. As a coach and a parent, Lindsay tells us about creative ways their organization is coming up with to keep costs down. Here's that conversation. For our club itself, you know, we try to, you know, go to different tournaments. We try to have the kids experience playing different clubs. Uh, Most grades, fifth and above, they get to travel one tournament and stay overnight, get a full weekend experience and see what, you know, that that team building um, and everything that it's more than just basketball, right? You're you're forming relationships, you're getting to know yourself and just all those different life experiences. Um, And it it does, um, like they've mentioned, there's costs, of course, associated with those things. Um, as a club, we try to do our best to um, to fundraise, um, work with different companies um, and people around the community who are also, you know, very involved in the youth sports in the community and want to see kids have the opportunity to play and, um, and are involved in sponsorships and things like that. Um, we're very fortunate to have a board. There's about 20 of us um, on our board and everybody is always all hands on deck. You know, what, what do we need to do to make sure that all our kids have the best experience they can have and the, and the opportunity itself, um, to play and to try to, um, you know, overcome some of those obstacles such as costs and things like that. So, um, it's a, the competitive nature of whether it's basketball or any sports now has started at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my second grader was playing on the fourth grade team because they, they needed to fill the team. Right. And, you know, growing up playing rec ball and you thought that was competitive. And now it's like if you're not if you're not already like fully involved at a pretty young age, um, there can be lots more obstacles or challenges that you face just because of the nature of how sports are nowadays. And I think kids see that. I think parents see that. So having their kids involved and having you know opportunities to 
we often actually, you know, when we host our peeps clinics, which is a clinic that we our camp, I guess you could call it, that we host in the winter and the spring for kids um, K through third grade to give them the opportunity to come in and learn the fundamentals and, you know, make friends and, you know, meet high school players and kind of create those relationships because you, you got to get them involved so young now because a few years down the road, it's you're, you're either all in or you're, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> That's just kind of how, how it goes now. So you mentioned uh, the board working hard to make sure costs don't become an issue. How do you mm -hmm. raise money? What, what, what do you do to help defer costs? Sure. Yep. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things we do, but some of the big ones that we do each year, um, we always do, you know, your traditional like pizza fundraisers, right? Everybody loves pizza. Um, they love to support their kids, their grandkids, their kids' friends. Um, you get some good pizza. So that's always a great fundraiser. We, we do something called 99 Pledges, and it's just a donation platform and a way for kids to kind of reach out, bring, you know, bring money into the clubs. And in turn, when we do these sorts of things or we do restaurant nights, right, we'll work with different restaurants in the community. That brings them business, which is great. Um, and then in turn, they give us some of that profit that goes towards the clubs. And then we can use that money to keep costs down for registration, um, or maybe to take a little bit of that burden off, you know, when you need new uniforms, that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously for basketball, things like, you know, your jerseys and your, you know, your basketball shoes, you know, those are all things that families, mm -hmm. that families provide. But when it comes to, you know, like I said, I, I coach. So, you know, when, when you're missing basketballs or when, um, you know, you're lacking the equipment, right? Or the the proper equipment. It, yep. it does make it challenging, especially for coaches and for teams at practice. Um, so having, you know, being able to fundraise and being able to bring funds into the sport so that we can ensure that our teams have, you know, good equipment for practices um, and those sorts of things is very, very important. And I guess also with the sponsorship, um, we've really kind of amped that up the last two years and just reached out to other like businesses in the community who they love to do those things. They like to ensure that kids have those opportunities and then they'll donate and sponsor. And when we can use those to in turn create more um, scholarships for players who maybe need it in order to play. And that's been very helpful. Representative Stevenson, what have you heard here today that you'll bring back to St. Paul? What's the importance of these issues in your community? What do you hear from families when you're door knocking? Yeah, well, as I said at the beginning, this is a community that really values uh, youth sports. It's the participation levels are really high here. And you get when you're out door knocking, either people will tell you or you just observe signs of it, right? You see all the gear out in the garage or you, you catch them coming and going uh, from, <laughs> yeah. from something. Hey, can't talk right now. I'm off to a practice, off to a game. You run into a lot of that. And it's important. It's important for this um, community. The demands are uh, uh, financial, are there for facilities, for equipment, uh, for all of these things. And that's, you know, why we look for opportunities to support that, whether it's through, you mentioned the bonding bill and I, I mentioned the My Ducks uh, program, but there are other opportunities, right? So the legislature is considering right now legalizing uh, sports betting. And yeah. I think that if we do that, it's really important that we devote a significant portion of the tax revenue that that generates to supporting youth sports. It's great for the kids. It's great for the community. And we see what happens when those programs are under stress and people aren't participating in them, right? Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, we had the pandemic come and we had uh, a lot of these programs have to shut down and all of a sudden youth crime 
goes up, right? right? Uh, kids need something to do constructive or they're going to do something destructive. I'm a prosecutor when the legislature is not in session. Yeah. And I had a police chief talk to me one time um, uh, when I was first elected. He said, make sure you do, and not just sports, but all their activities, yeah. you know, theater and art and dance and all this other stuff. Uh, he said, you know, make sure you fund that stuff because either you're going to take care of them or I will, right? Uh, and we don't, we don't want that. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yep. Uh, so it's really important that we, we invest in that. MNN contributor Blois Olson. Be sure to tune in next week when Blois continues his series on youth sports in Minnesota. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radel.